you come to realize you've seen her kind of eyes watching you from underneath a rock. You're no help, This vampire bat, this inhuman beast, she ought to be locked up and never released. The world was such a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 101 of Hello, the Seastruck Movie Podcast. Today, I'm here with my lovely co-host. It's the usual gang, starting off with Curtis. Hello, everybody. And Quinn. What's going on? 101 problems, but a bitch ain't one. <laughs> In this case, um, bitch referring to a dog, by the way, folks, because we're talking yes. 101 Dalmatians, uh, the Disney classic part of the the Disney canon. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Actually, I wrote up, I wrote up some notes because um wasn't aware of this. You know, I feel like as a kid, when you, I don't know about you, maybe we could just talk about our first experience, watch this movie. I guess maybe show of hands. Did you watch this? In the white clamshell VHS tape as a child in the nineties. Oh, of course I, I had it. I had it in the back. <laughs> Commentary for those who don't see the screen. Everyone put up their hand. Uh, yeah, we all watched this as a kid on tape. In fact, uh, this was actually, I think, one of for a period of time was one of, if not the most, uh, the highest selling Disney tape. Um, so we grew up in the nineties watching these movies. I feel like as a kid when you watch these old Disney films, everything just kind of gets flattened. Like I have no sense of time and distance between like. Pinocchio and this one, even though there's literally like a 20 year gap between them. Um, so I'll talk a little bit once we get into it. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the time and place of this movie and actually why it was kind of important for uh, the Disney uh, company as well, too. Uh, but before we do, we're going to do our usual spiel about news of the week. Um, so wrote a couple of notes, uh, some things that caught my eye. Um, one of the big ones is a, it's a milestone this week. Uh, the film, the great uh, Sofia Coppola film Lost in, in Translation turns 20 years old. Uh, we're all she's, getting she's old. Got, she's got a new film on the, the the film circuits too. Priscilla, I think about that's right. Elvis and his wife, his young great. wife. <laughs> yeah, Which I really want to see it. Yeah, it looks great. It actually like uh, if we ever doing another watch series, like Sofia Coppola is actually like, number one on my oh, list I because her, I yeah. think um, she's a filmmaker. I think she like for us, especially myself. I, I get to speak for myself. Like as a kid, she was like part of the like up and coming like generation, and so. Like as when I was coming of age, like she was considered like part of the group of like the nascent like two thousands like filmmakers who were making films for like the the new generation. So there, I always kind of was attracted to her films because like they felt like we won't we won't talk about fresh. the Godfather Part Three. <laughs> <laughs> well, disregard her acting career, uh, <laughs> but uh, as a filmmaker, I think she's interesting because you know. Uh, obviously, the, the the most Nepo of fucking Nepo babies, you know, the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola uh, in the Scion family um, and makes films about like kind of like privilege and class. But in a way that I think is actually kind of interesting, because she she obviously makes these films from the perspective of being kind of from a higher class. And that's especially true in a film like uh, Marie Antoinette. But I think does it in a way that has actually kind of has ha there's some interest in it. And I actually find that fascinating because a lot of films about class and status from higher up people uh they tend to feel very uh limited and and, and parochial and, and it's not the case with her film so um i don't want to get into it but very excited lost in translation was a film i watched not that long ago actually i think it would have been maybe like nine or ten years ago um and i i remember really enjoying it it's a it was of course the star making vehicle for scarlett johansson and a bit of a comeback for bill murray as well too so um have you guys seen that film um, I translation. Translation. Yeah, it's one it's of my favorites. One of my favorite movies ever. 
Cool. I Great love movie. There, there, there is love Scarlet. You love Bill. <laughs> me yeah, me too. But there's something about that movie, and I, I know it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. But that movie leaves me with such a feeling of like melancholy, and I feel like every time I watch that movie, just like their night out in Japan together and all that stuff, and it's like obviously such a culture shock and so foreign. Like I think like. uh Sophie Coppola is just like she's so good at like I don't know just like like you feel like you go to Japan you feel, you feel the alienation you know yeah you 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 feel like you're there with them every time and it's like again it's just like a culture shock it's almost like a reset button that movie like if you're ever having like like I don't know like weird times you're confused about life or like maybe like mental health issues like man I turned that movie on and it like I don't know. It's like inspirational, but also leaves you with like, so it's almost like when you're like feeling in a really good mood and you feel like you really want to listen to sad music. That's like, like the best way I could describe it. It's and like there's something really beautiful good. about their connection to those two characters. So good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. That movie. And uh, I, I, I didn't even know this. I recently found out that she had once dated Quentin Tarantino. I'm like, man. Wow. Really? Yeah. yeah I didn't know <laughs> this headed guy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that, but uh she, yeah, she dated the what? <laughs> yeah, her her and uh, Tarantino dated for a little bit, and I'm like, man, like to be in on their conversations, like to hear what they've like, what they've bounced ideas off each other, because she's such a brilliant filmmaker, and uh, and obviously so is he. But um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Sorry to ramble, but Lost in Translation is a masterpiece. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I think it's a great um, film. So happy anniversary to that film. Um, also wanted to mention there's a I'll put it in the show notes there is an interesting article today I, uh, well this week in, in the vulture about uh, the, the article's titled the decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes the most overrated metric in movies and erratic productive and easily hacked and yet has Hollywood in its grip I've always been really fascinated about the rise of Rotten Tomatoes if you were a young uh, nascent film goer online in the early 2000s Ron Tomatoes like was a was a massive deal um, because this was the period of time where IMDB ruled and there was like blogger sites like ain't a cool news stuff like that but ron tomatoes quickly emerged as like the premier site for determining what is good what isn't good uh for those of you who maybe don't know i'm sure everyone does know you google a movie rotten tomatoes is one of the first things that comes up with its ratings ron tomatoes works by it takes uh a group of sets um approved tomato approved film critics um some of them could be like a lot of them is historically newspaper critics nowadays it's a lot of like internet websites blogs stuff like that probably podcasters and stuff too for that matter um maybe we should get our tomato approved meter i don't know yeah but add me on that list <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna get a bunch of hay mail which is gonna get into my point um the tomato meter of course if you write a review that is good you know uh, over the threshold of 50 percent it is considered fresh and so the, if you write a review that is less than 50 percent negative it's rotten and so they add up the amount of rottens and and uh, fresh and it gives you a score uh, the problem of course with that is that you could have an 100 percent tomato score that does not mean your movie is an a plus movie you could literally get from every single critic it's pretty good. It's okay. Yeah, like they gave it, three out, give you they gave it three out of five or something, and it's still like considered positive. Exactly. So the scoring, people don't realize that the like the scoring, the actual percentages don't necessarily neatly line up with that. And uh, over the years, Rotten Tomatoes has become like such like fan obsessed. People really obsess over getting a perfect score or getting a certain type of score. It reminds me of when I was younger. I used to be really into video games, and if you ever went on the video game boards. 
people would like lose their minds if like Zelda didn't get like a an eighty out of a hundred or something. Yeah, like, like IGN, IGN stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, well, I think about. It, I think it was uh, Gamespot gave like the one of the Zelda games an eight point eight out of like out of ten, and like <laughs> the guy was getting death threats about it because they're like, if it's not a nine or perfect, it's so it's kind of like that kind of like culture of like discourse. And uh, the, of course, in the last decade or so, Rotten Tomatoes has now become a big deal. In fact, if you buy a movie, um, sometimes you'll see it literally advertised directly on the case of the DVD or Blu-ray. If you watch a trailer, a red brand band trailer, or whatever, you'll often see like the Rotten Tomatoes score in the trailer. So um, it's become such a big part of how movies are actually marketed now, too, um, even though um, the scoring itself is oftentimes very unpredictable, um, especially when it comes to the user side of scoring. There's, of course, the critic scores, but the big obsession now is the user scoring because users can enter scores and that creates an average. So you'll get movies that get review bombed like a. Uh, any Disney movie that has a black actress in it gets like terribly reviewed because all the racists pour in and lose their shit and, uh, and vice versa for like other movies and stuff too. So it's, I don't know, it's an interesting phenomena. I think the, the website has its purpose. And, and I think, you know, if you look at it objectively, it's okay. It's a good resource for seeing a sampling of reviews and stuff. But um, I think with a lot of these things, if you, if you, if you make it your Bible, you're going to be disappointed. And I don't think that's a really good way to engage with film anyway. Yeah, because there is a skewed. It is skewed oh, by no. nature. I think. Sorry, go ahead, Quinn. Oh no, no, you you started before me. Go ahead. Oh no, I just had a quick point. I said it's it feels kind of skewed by nature. Like like we said, like one person could vote three out of five, and then one person votes two out of five. Or if you have a great movie, there's some asshole in Cincinnati who doesn't like the film, so he gives it like one out of five, and then it's not one hundred percent anymore. Too, it's kind of That's a weird way. And of I do. I mean, yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm a huge like IMDb person. Like I I love that website. I love how um the score is you know similar to like sort of like an olympic score where it is like decimal points and the more people come in it has that average and it gives you the average and you can sort of look into it by like critic reviews and then user reviews i find rotten tomatoes is like i, I don't even i don't I, I like i just avoid the entire website like i just can't stand like just how, how it is especially because like you said like a movie could be like so bad. And like, if you see the ad or the trailer rather on, on TV or whatever, and it's like, Oh, certified fresh, this, 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 this. And you just see a bunch of these like tomato emojis all over your screen. The more that you see of those, the worse the movie is going to be <laughs> like the worst the movie. And like, you never see like, it already has an 8.1 on IMDb and it's opening weekend out of 22,700 views. Like it doesn't say that shit. But like the more tomatoes you see, the worse the movie is. And the most <laughs> the more they backpack on Rotten Tomatoes in their trailer, the shittier that movie is gonna be. I that that's, that's sometimes I want to watch those green tomato splatter movies too, you know, just for just to piss them off. <laughs> well, and the other thing and like sometimes you see movies that are phenomenal like really good movies, you know, like some of the greatest of all time, like Citizen Kane or whatever the case may be. And then you look at the Rotten Tomato score and you're like, it has the same as like, are we there yet? Three? Like, what <laughs> the fuck? It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, come on. It, it's like, it's, it's, it's all over the map. So I, I just, I don't, I haven't, not that I, don't I, haven't... Respect, I respect any, any, any yeah. movie person's opinion, you know, I, I, I respect it. Like I, I get it. I might not agree, but um, 
yeah, just Rotten Tomatoes sucks. It's just like a soup sandwich. Yeah. Also, the website's not very good. It's if you go on it nowadays, it's just it's like all websites. They're just getting progressively more and more terrible. There's too many ads, pop ups. Right. Just like the VUI is insane. Um, yeah. I haven't seen the the Blu-ray case of Cocaine Bear, but I'm willing to bet some money that it has a Rotten Tomatoes logo on it. Uh, I just know that the trailers for Strays oh. probably mentioned Rotten Tomatoes. I haven't seen any of them. I just know if I had to guess, they probably do. There's a certain kind of movie that you're like, okay, this movie is definitely gonna. Lean that's into right. the Rotten Tomatoes thing. Um, and, and another th- trailer did. And another thing, I, I, when you talk about Rotten Tomatoes, you can't not talk about someone named Armin White, who, if you don't know who Armin White is, he's a film critic. I believe he writes for the National Review now. He's been writing for it for a while, uh, which is a conservative uh, paper. He's a uh, from New York City. He's a black, queer, conservative critic. And he was, he's been the bane of Rotten Tomatoes existence for, for <laughs> decades. He's probably, if you know, if you don't know him that well, he's probably best known is that if you're looking at a tomato score for a, a considered great movie, it'll get like a 99 and you'll see the one bad negative score out of like a thousand is his score. And oh. <laughs> as a, as a young filmmaker, I was as a, sorry, as a young film fan, um, I was kind of just like raised to, to think that Armin White's a moron and shouldn't be considered and he's an idiot. And while I will admit that he's kind of been a hack post-Trump, like all his reviews now is, are start off about, you know, railing against woke culture and they're kind of a mess. Um, I think he's actually like a pretty interesting guy to read. And I actually, I find myself now, one of the first reviews I'll read from critics is his, because I, I always feel like I'm going to get like an interesting view, even if, if it's a view I don't really agree with. And, and especially for his, for the older movies that he's reviewed, I, I've actually found some that have actually been kind of interesting. I think it's kind of interesting to have a, you know, a devil's devil's advocate critic who um, is earnest about it or seems to be earnest about it anyway. And, uh, you know, especially like you'll, you'll read his reviews about films that touch on um, like uh, like queerness and stuff like that. And he has like something interesting to say about that. So I, I, I find that refreshing now. And I really think the idea that like any review he writes is a troll or he's an idiot isn't totally fair. Post-2016, yeah, probably, because, like, his reviews now are insane. But uh, back in the day, he had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of stuff to him. And also in the years since then, he's been, like, banned from, like, New York Film Festival for, for like, I think he was, like, shouting at, uh, what's this guy, the guy who made, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the filmmaker's name. He's a black filmmaker, but he, like, got in a shouting argument with him, and he's just kind of uh, fallen Spike off the me. wagon a bit. No, no, no. He was the guy who did, um, like, Shame and uh, I think 12 Years a Slave. I can't remember his name. Um, oh, like Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. Yeah, he got in like an argument yeah. with him, and he was like calling him out on something, and like it was a whole tizzy. But he he's kind of been shunned now from the mainstream as much as he used to be, and now he's kind of fallen more into his. Uh, uh, but it's still kind of funny. I love to crack open a, a new Armin White review talking about how I don't know Jack and Jill three is a masterpiece, and I just I love it. It's so funny. <laughs> the guy's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyways, I think moving on from that. Um, a lot of film fest stuff's happening. I didn't put in the notes, but it's also TIFF right now. Yes. TIFF's rolling on. Yes. Mm-hmm. A lot of cool movies are premiering at TIFF. Uh, Zone of Interest, the Jonathan, the new Jonathan Glazer movie. Uh, the big one is the new Vim Vendors movie. It's his first movie in, I think, quite a long time. Oh, he's like 100 years old. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, but, of course, I did put in my notes as well, too. It's the uh, Venice Film Festival. It's still rolling on. Um, I put down a list of any films you're interested in seeing. I think, Curtis, you, you added one, right? Uh, films that I want to see? Yeah, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I maybe I did. <laughs> well, I see Priscilla on here, and I didn't add that. So. Oh, Priscilla, yeah, maybe that was me. Yeah, it was me. <laughs> yeah, I really want to see Priscilla because I I love Sofia Coppola's work, and uh, obviously it's quite controversial because I mean, you know what Elvis did back in the day was you know kind of pedophilic, you know, 
courting and dating this 16 year old girl or 14 or however old she was to never meet your this, heroes folks yeah this is but it's apparently uh, priscilla really liked this adapt- adaptation of the movie i think it was very sensitive to maybe a little bit like licorice pizza too like there's a controversial aspect of the film too but maybe it's more complex than that too so i'm interested to see how the film is depicted and i uh I'm really keen on the performances. Apparently, they didn't have uh, the colonel at all in the film, which is interesting. Maybe she saw Tom Hanks as the colonel and was like, well, <laughs> you know, nothing's going to top that. So it's just, you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see it. I love Elvis and I like kind of this revision of his legacy, too. So I'm definitely going to check that out. But that's the only thing I, I added to my list. What about you, Quinn? Yes, I added a uh, a movie called Juliet of the Spirits. And it's a Fellini film, Federico mm-hmm. Fellini. Uh, was a crazy good director. Um, and it's basically about um, <clears throat> a uh, a man who's having an affair with a younger woman. Um, she believes that there's a better life for her out there, but she's afraid of the unknown, assisted by her neighbor and friend, free spirit Susie uh, Gil- Gilietta. Italian sets off on a quest to find out what her future might bring and to perhaps get the courage to leave her husband and comfortable life. Uh, it's comedy, drama, fantasy from 1965. Apparently it's fantastic. And the reason why I added it on my list, because I saw a interview with Nick Cage uh, from yesterday uh, at TIFF and they asked him what his favorite movies were, his top five or whatever it was. And that was, that was the only one I hadn't heard of. So uh-huh. I went and added my list um and i love i i think fellini is just really really cool i got into him because of uh so colorful and so theatrical like stuff yeah (laughs) yeah it's just like i i know like uh eight and a half is like a big you know big film creating movie eight and a half is amazing but like also uh, there's another movie i love called la strada which is great that's the circus one right yeah yeah, yeah, it's. I like awesome. uh, I like Fellini's Satyricon too. That's crazy, but it's so good. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he was phenomenal. Rome um, before Christ, after Fellini. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and then the other one, uh, I added a crappy horror movie from '79. Uh, it's on Tubi right now. I got to check it out. It's called Microwave Massacre. Nice. Um, fed up. Uh, fed up of his wife's bad cooking, Donald kills her and turns to cannibalism to satisfy <laughs> his appetite. <laughs> Sounds great. That's what the movie's about. So it's <laughs> going to be total trash. 4.2 fresh out of 10 on IMDb. You know uh, who loves this movie? Probably Armin White. <laughs> probably yeah, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> that's it. Um, so yeah, I'd say those are the two main ones I added. The third one I will talk about, I watched. I ended up watching it last night. Um, that I added to my list, but I will get into that after. But um, yeah, that's it. What about uh, what about you, John? Yeah, uh, well, I just I'm going to just note the ones that are currently on the festival circuit at, at Venice. Um, Evil does not exist. It's a Ryusuke Hamaguchi film. If you don't know him, he did Drive My Car two years ago, which got a lot of buzz. I didn't get a chance to see it yet, but um, he's kind of an up and comer uh, filmmaker, a Japanese filmmaker. Uh, so this one I'll be paying some attention to. And actually the one that just won the Golden Lion, which is going to get probably some serious Oscar buzz uh, by the God himself, Yorgos Lanthimos, is Poor Things. So really excited to watch that one. Has a really interesting, unique visual style compared to a lot of Yorgos' other films. If you've if you've seen his other films, they tend to be a little bit more drier, 
Um, well, maybe the favorite's a little bit garish, but you know, something like the lobster is very dry. Um, but I think he's, I think maybe following the favorite, he's getting into more like fantastical stuff. And poor thing seems almost like in the mode of like almost like a Tim Burton style visual film. Um, uh, it's got a good cast too. Emma Stone is playing the lead in it. Uh, apparently, it's pretty twisted. Uh, it's been getting like a lot of weird buzz, um, but got won the Golden Lion, so it was nominated. It was won the award for best film in Venice. So, uh, would not shock me if uh, you know, flat fast forward to March and this is a uh, nominated with the best picture list. So, uh, we'll probably want to check this out once this one rolls out in theaters. I guess probably within the next few months it's gonna roll out. So, be fun to see that. Um, since we got some time to kill as well too, we could go over. What we watched, I watch like I, you know, I watch a lot of things, <laughs> so I got like a huge list. But I'll, I'll abridge, I'll abridge it. I'll keep it short. So, uh, Quinn, since you're just talking about the one that you watched uh, that was on your list, why don't you kick us off? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I ended up watching this movie from 2011 um, that I heard about recently called The Tunnel, and uh, it is um, based in Sydney, Australia, and it's about uh, an investigation into a government cover-up leads to a network of abandoned train tunnels deep beneath the heart of Sydney, Australia. As a journalist and her crew hunt for the story, it quickly becomes clear the story is hunting them. So, it is done very much like a documentary, um, low-budget indie film. Yeah, it's found uh, footage, where... right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, basically, how it's, like, done is, like, it shows them being interviewed, kind of, like, telling the story. And then showing their footage of going down these abandoned train tunnels and what happens to them when we're when they're down there. And you know what? Not bad. Not bad at all. Like uh, pretty decent, um, you know, a couple of good like scary moments, a couple of good like little jump scares in there. But overall, for like a movie that I think they made it for like one hundred and thirty five thousand. And I think it was like mostly from like a GoFundMe or some type of like funding page. Honestly, they did a good job. Like, uh, pretty sweet movie. It's on Tubi if you want to check it out. It's called The Tunnel. Um, yeah, it was just good to see a nice little like Australian horror kind of mystery flicks. Like, it was cool. So, um, I like to see what the Aussies all. come up with too, because sometimes it's batshit stuff, but it's always yeah. really entertaining. <laughs> oh yeah, no, for sure. Like, and and like, there's a few like funny lines in there too. Like, but just the the tunnels that they shot the movie in itself is like really gives a good like uh atmosphere to the movie and and, and really kind of brings you in and uh i i find found footage movies can be like sort of hit or miss but like this one i would say like you know it it checks off all the boxes and and, and stuff like that so um yeah check it out but uh yeah what about you uh john do you want to kick us off with what you watch yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, again, I've got like a huge list, but I'll I'll keep it down to the best of the best. So I have some we so we all have something to talk about. So um, uh, rolled out to the Bytown uh, to rewatch this one. Uh, this is the William Friedkin classic to live and die in L.A. Of course, oh, William oh, Friedkin classic. just passed away. All of his films now are kind of getting a lot of theatrical re-releases. Uh, this one's really bad funny. Dude, okay, so, bad, bad guy Willem Dafoe. <laughs> so as a kid, like uh, my dad had to live and die in LA on tape, and my dad loves to live and die in LA. My dad loves Wang Chung. He has got like Wang Chung best of CD. Oh, amazing! I watched wow. this movie. I watched this movie for the first time. I would have been like eight years old. I barely remember the movie. I remember there was a car chase, and I rewatched it. And I'm like, I cannot believe I watched this fucking movie with my dad when I was eight years old. 
it is so twisted, <laughs> like psychosexual. It's um, wild. Um, the, the plot, the rough, rough plot of the movie is like these Secret Service agents. One of them is played by the god, William Peterson, and uh, his partner. Um, they're investigating this counterfeit operation. Uh, uh, the counterfeiter is played by, uh, as Curtis mentioned, Willem Dafoe. Really great kind of like Michael Mann-esque sequence where we're seeing him create the money. It's very technical. Um, it really has that kind of similar man feeling. Uh, Friedkin, I find, is a, kind of a similar filmmaker in a lot of ways. Um, his partner, uh, sorry, William Peterson's partner, I don't want I get a little spoiler, I guess, but gets killed by him and his, the by Dafoe and his group of kind of uh, thugs. He yeah, that was shocking this... when that happens too, yeah. Yeah, he recruits a new partner and then they're going after him. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I hadn't watched this movie in so long. Um, coming back to it, I because I, I recently rewatched Wild at Heart, which also has Willem Dafoe, and I actually think that I feel like there's a little bit of similarities between them because they, they're Peru. both they're <laughs> both kind of like Dante's Inferno descends into hell. You know, it's it's this movie has the airs of like an '80s big cop cop, cop film, and it's you think it's going to be kind of like that, and it is in a way. We get this like crazy fucking. Uh, chase sequence in the movie it's like one of the best ever on the highway when they're going like the wrong way through the highway and uh, uh but like it's a lot of this film is just like a descent into hell as things get progressively worse and william peterson is like kind of a little bit twisted as well too and there's this weird like almost sexual relationship between like him and defoe like they have this kind of like cat and mouse back and forth it's a really wild film um would definitely recommend people check it out too because i think when you think friedkin you think like french connection you think the sorcerer you think exorcist a lot of people don't really give this film credit and this is this film is like this is the film that kind of set the stage for 80s nostalgia you don't get gta vice city without this film and as a result i think a lot a lot of what we think of the 80s actually comes from like this kind of film and also like Miami vice as well too. really like all the neons and the colors. But I love, I love this film too, because I don't know about you guys think, but like, I feel like LA films, it's always like, here's Hollywood. Here's Beverly Hills. This one is like, here's the slums. Here's the docks. Like it's showing you like a different side of LA. It's dusty. It's grungy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's worn down. You know, it's late Reagan era. It's everything feels a little bit shoddy. It's not as sunny and warm as you get with like all the other um, spots in LA you go through the aqueducts and stuff like that so it's cool to have an LA film that's not LA in its, yeah. in its way um, I guess you guys have all both seen it I know Quinn you've, you've revisited recently yeah too. it's one of my favorites too so and yeah. I, I remember that when, when the, there's a scene later at the at the end of the film where a certain character gets killed and I remember just my jaw actually dropped because it yeah. was just so unexpected and it's a great film how it plays with the kind of noir tradition and also kind of the archetypes too and you i love willem dafoe in that movie as the villain it's just so interesting and flamboyant and psychosexual like you said it's not like other noirs from its time that's right yeah movie's amazing uh i'm also a fan of wang chung i think the soundtrack yeah. is wicked uh, i actually have the soundtrack on vinyl and i do have it on tape too nice. um but uh yeah to live and die in la i watched it a few years ago my buddy recommended it and I checked it out and like, man, just like Friedkin, probably the best car chase director ever. Like, I I still think the car chase, other than the car chase and bullet, I think the car chase and the French connection is the greatest car chase of all time. Um, but uh, to live and die in L.A. is definitely up there. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. The acting, everything, the surprises, the the colors, the way they shot uh los angeles for what it is not just beaches and babes and hollywood and money and <laughs> yeah. bullshit um yeah i think uh to live and die in la is one of the best movies of the 80s for sure um 
and also one of the best freaking films that he made. Um, so rest in peace to him. He was a master. Oh, yeah. Um, the second of my three, I watched uh, a film that's been on my, like, I've been wanting to watch for quite a while. It came out last year. It was an Oscar film. It had a lot of buzz. Um, this one is Tar, uh, directed by Tar, by Todd Fields. Uh, oh, Todd Fields right. had a really interesting career, too, because he really, like, came on the scene as a filmmaker in the 2000s with films like uh, In the Bedroom, Little Children, and then basically went, like, 16, 17 years without making a movie uh, from, from his from his reporting, he was uh, doing a lot of commercial directing and stuff. So he wasn't like out of work or anything, but didn't make a feature film for, for many years until just last year uh, with Tar, which is a, a film that he also, a project he had in mind. He would only do it if he could get Kate Blanchett to play Lydia Tar. And wow, she's great in the movie, obviously, but um, what an interesting film. I, I think it's a really great script. And I think like the film really respects your intelligence as an audience um, to not be too spoilery. It's about this woman, Lydia Tar. She's, of her of her time it takes place in our contemporary society she's considered like the greatest composer of our era she's a young woman relative to the the domain she's in which is all like 80 year old white man uh she's also a queer woman she's she calls it as she refers to herself she's a u-haul lesbian um so she's kind of stands out amongst the culture and she gets a lot of uh, a lot of attention from like the the new yorker and the the, the press and uh, she's recently joined the Berlin Orchestra. She's the first woman to do so. And she's obsessed with sort of finishing this like kind of masterpiece works that she's working on. Um, and along the way, um, we see that, um, well, I guess I'll just say we see literally her things in her life completely unravel uh, to be really vague. Um, and the film is really fascinating. It kind of touches into a lot of territory that people are probably familiar with now with stuff like Me Too. And I think the film... It would have been very easy for the film to be very leaden and to be very exploitative, but it's really interesting how subtle the film gets into these subjects, just presenting things and really as an audience allows you to really make your judgments about what you think. Um, and I really, what I didn't expect was there's a lot of like horror elements in this that I really like was surprised by and where I found really like interesting. There's this kind of constant sense of dread um, that ha that's there throughout the movie, but there's like actual very explicit horror moments that i i was really struck by so i thought the movie was great kate blanchett didn't i don't think she won best actress but she probably should have because she was really great in the movie um really a tour de force performance um and just a really layered and i love the music in it it's so good the, a lot of the film's very quiet and then you get the big booming orchestra scenes um and the set design it's all very like a lot of the a lot of the room she's in are very angular a lot of like brutalist structures but a lot of ornate kind of set design and it really kind of contrasts the kind of cold emotionless stuff we see with her so really cool uh really great film I definitely say people should check it out if they haven't yet. It's one of the best of last year. Uh, have you guys got a chance to watch that one yet? Unfortunately, oh, I not. I haven't. No, I've heard a lot of good things about such it, but I haven't seen things. it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard such good things. Um, uh, so I will definitely get to it. But yeah, and the last one I'll wrap with, Curtis. I know you've seen this one. This one's one of your favorites, so I was excited to watch this one. Uh, this one was Tenebre by Dario Argento. Oh yeah, that's a good uh, one. <laughs> yeah, this was really messy, cool. Messy, but... <laughs> the maestro of horror. You know, after a couple of uh, psycho, you know, psychedelic paranormal horrors returns to the giallo genre. It's a really a pure giallo movie. This one, it's uh, about this uh, this uh, horror writer named uh, was named Peter Neal, who's coming to Rome from New York, and as he arrives, strange crimes happen. We see another typical black gloved giallo killer mm -hmm. who seems to be like leaving, who seems to be obsessed with 
Peter Neal's latest novel, Tenebre, and is leaving clues to him, mailing him clues that are quotes from the novel. And there's this weird connection between him and the killer. And this starts this sort of investigation. I also love with Argento films, you get kind of like the who his usual cast of people. Of course, his um collaborate collaborator, his his former romantic partner, um, Daria Nicolodi is in this playing um Anne. She's great, of course. Kind of a small role for her. I found out that like him and her were actually kind of like having a bit of a tizzy at the time because she didn't get certain credit on Suspiria that she should have. And she was like really upset by it. Um, so she doesn't get a lot of time in this movie. Uh, John Saxon is in this. I love John Saxon, of course. Uh, every John Saxon movie, he's like the dad cop who's like, <laughs> I don't really believe what's going on. And he's like, wait a second. I do believe what's going on. At, like, it's too the last, late, John. Like, <laughs> the movie. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a really, really, really interesting visual style. You go from Inferno with its gothic settings and its purples and pinks to this movie. It's all modernist, brutalist architecture, mid-century modern furniture, creams, pastels, whites. It's a very white pastel-y movie. Um, but this movie has some great stuff in it. The crane sequence, the camera going over the house is like the craziest shot in any movie that I've seen of his to date. Um, there's a dog chase scene that's like fucking oh, yeah. insane. It goes on forever. in my mind. It goes on <laughs> so long. I almost stood up on my couch. I was like, could not believe it. Um, I really dug the movie. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Um, I don't know if I like it as much as Suspiria, but I probably like it a little bit more than Inferno, actually. I thought it was a really interesting film. And it's kind of like a pro. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's like a bit of like a proto meta we you know the 80s and 90s we would get a wave of like meta horrors in the mouth of madness scream etc new nightmare this movie was kind of like a forefather to that it's a little bit of like proto horror stuff that seems to really be argento grappling with himself as like a horror guy and like the stuff that he's done and is he manifesting really bad shit into the world and kind of dealing a little bit with that too um in a way that I, I thought that was kind of interesting in a way, because I feel like at the time, I'm sure maybe there had been a lot of criticism of his works as being very lurid and and perverted and stuff. And I wonder if he took a lot of that to heart. I do know that he had, for a time he was actually staying in L.A. and was getting strange phone calls and stuff. And so that he actually based that off his actual experience in America. So I thought that was kind of cool. But uh, Curtis, do you have any thoughts on that film? Because I know that's like one of your favorites, right? Yeah, I love it. It's kind of batshit. I like, I really like Spirio too. And I like uh, Phenomena with a young Jennifer Connelly too. But that's one of my favorites. I think the Tenebrae too. And yeah, just kind of, I mean, it follow, it's like another Giallo film, but it's it's not because it's just so visually dazzling. Not in the same way that Suspiria is, but it's just like you got these batshit scenes, like, you know, like the dog chase. And um, is that the one where like the dog kills like a, the blind woman maybe i'm thinking of a different film that's, but either uh, way superior superior yeah but it's it's so entertaining and it's so weird and john saxon's kind of fun in it too and they always got some killer with some stupid rationale but uh yeah it's one of his best ones i think yeah, yeah i agree and... great great movie i a few years ago uh curtis was nice enough to to buy me that on tape oh you watched get... it oh good oh yeah yeah um yeah so yeah it was it's awesome i love it um I still, believe it or not, have not seen uh, Suspiria. Oh, this Halloween, man, you should watch it. I think you'd really like. And watch will. the new one. Watch the new one too, because the new one's really good. Yes, I absolutely will. But uh, yeah, I think that might have been my first Argento movie I watched. Tenebre, pretty sure. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, great one. Glad you liked it, John. Hell yeah. Um, so now we're moving, you know, good transition from psycho sexual giallo horror to 
colorful Dalmatian uh, heist movie. I don't know. Uh, we're talking 101 Dalmatians for 1961, based off the 1956 children's novel, The 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith. Um, just to give a little bit of backstory. So how did this movie come about? Um, the story itself was actually brought to attention uh, by uh, to Walt Disney, um, and he uh, took a look at the book and thought it was interesting. They acquired the rights to it. Um, they started working on a script. Bill Pete wrote the script. He actually, this was, he didn't know how to use a typewriter. So he wrote the entire script by hand. Um, there's a lot of somewhat changes to the story. The big one is there's actually two mother Dalmatians in the story. One of them is called Mrs. I've actually, I don't know if you guys have read the book. I haven't read the book. No, myself. I haven't. I didn't even know there was um, a book. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't really, I don't know. There's some book fan out there who's like, you're missing the important details. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but there's been a, there's there's some changes apparently from the book. Uh, Cruella apparently also has a husband and a cat. Go figure. But regardless, um, the context of this movie is interesting. Disney in the late 1950s they released what was at the time their most expensive movie, which was Sleeping Beauty, um, which I think again as kids we grew up with these movies all on tape. To me, Sleeping Beauty was a fine movie. I don't really remember it very well. I I know there's like uh, Maleficent and all that, but. Um, when it came out in 1959, it was actually a bit of a box office bust because it actually didn't make as much money as it was supposed to. Um, it wasn't, I don't believe, I don't recall if it was like very critically praised as well too. Um, at the time, Walt Disney, this was the kind of time when he was actually very less directly involved with films and like these works like Snow White and Pinocchio, like the ones he had very direct involvement in at this period of time, Walt Disney was more involved in live action filmmaking. He was of course really involved with his business ventures you know his amusement parks that were getting ready to get started up disney disneyland was soon to be uh you know created um so he wasn't really as involved with these films uh sleeping beauty's failure which at the time was disney's most expensive picture resulted actually in disney's first ever annual loss and they actually laid off people it was actually a pretty hard time for disney so um Part of the result of this was actually a decision to change their animation style. The earlier Disney stuff was all hand-drawn cells. From this film and onward, they would switch to doing uh, xerography, where they use Xerox cameras to actually basically just photochemically transfer stuff over, basically like printing, reprinting stuff. Uh, as a result, it was a lot cheaper. You didn't have to hand-draw every single goddamn Dalmatian. You could just kind of do a photocopy, and it would do it for you. Um, but there would be a notable kind of difference with the animation. You might notice when you watch this one, and especially like Sword in the Stone and stuff like that, you see a lot of like the penciling. You see a lot of like that sort of stuff in it. It's very, you see the hard black lines. Almost all the characters, I think every single character has like a black outline around them. That's intentional. That's actually, that's something they couldn't really get rid of uh, through this process. As opposed to when you look at the kind of softer animation in stuff like Snow White, it's, it feels very soft and kind of fluid. Uh, you don't really get the same with this one. It's almost think, more closer to like a Hanna-Barbera, not to that shoddy degree, but it has a kind of feel to it almost. It's kind of nice with this because you get like the ink of the Dalmatian spots and everything too, and it works kind of really well with the animation style, yeah. I think. And especially yeah. when they're like covered in soot and stuff too. It's really That's cool. Right. And the intro, of course, has the, the great text intro with the little dots everywhere. It's pretty fun. Um, and as well too, like I think Disney uh, kind of as a consequence later on, you know, as cost cutting would go, you'd see them really reuse this kind of cell work too. Like you look at a film like Jungle Book, 
And then years later, Robin Hood. Robin Hood is basically like a fucking ripoff of Jungle Book. It takes so many like animated sequences from that movie and like redoes them over. And like you could really see like the okay, we're just we're seeing like the really like cost cutting measures that they're doing here. Um, I like Robin Hood enough. I remember I liked it as a kid, but um, you know, you've seen all those like comparisons between you know Baloo and then Friar John, Friar Tuck, and all that stuff. Um, lot lot different. Um. And so, yeah, as a result, the animation style was different, would be cheaper. Um, Disney himself actually really came out disliking this technique. However, uh, as his health later failed towards the 60s, he later reconciled with the art director and um, kind of came to grips with it. Um, I guess we can get into the movie. So the movie is very, I would say the story is a little bit low stakes compared to a lot of the other Disney stuff. You know, it's not like big epic scope. There's no Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a very, not very subtle kind of, you know, critique of kind of the aristocracy kind of taking advantage of the working class you know yeah and it takes place in kind of contemporary times unlike the other movies which tend to be i guess maybe dumbo's an exception i don't really remember but a lot of the older films take place in kind of like the 19th century or kind of in like kind of a fantastical middle ages or something this one takes place in 60s london um and the story is about this uh, a man and his pup, uh, his pet, and by the man I'm referring to, Pongo, the uh, Dalmatian. I love how all the animals refer to their owners as pets in this movie. Pongo lives with Roger, who is this spiring songwriter who loves smoking his pipe as well, too. And, uh, Anita you know, darling. Pongo is, you know, Pongo's horny. Pongo wants to fuck. <laughs> Pongo's like, you know what? My owner needs to fuck, too. And so he's like looking out the window. He's scoping out some biddies for his uh, for his owner, uh, for his pet. And he spots uh, per- Perdita or Purdy, as she's referred to, uh, his lady uh, Dalmatian with his her uh, equally attractive partner. And he's like, score, we're going to I'm going to hook up with her. I'm being really like crass, but it is kind of basically the plot of this movie. The first 20 minutes is him being like, OK, this guy's got to meet someone like it's really putting it out there. If you if you have an incel family member in your life, you got to show them this movie, set them on the right track. Um, anyways, <laughs> make, make the feel good again. <laughs> cut it short. Um, Roger and um, and uh, the oh, I forgot Anita. That's her name. Anita. Meet. Anita up, it's a fun, really. It's a really fun scene too, and I really love how dog like the dogs are. In this movie. I'm a recent dog owner. I've owned a dog now for five or six years. Um, as a kid, I liked the movie, but I I, I came back to this movie actually like two years ago. And uh, as a dog owner, I really love how do- the dog animation is done in this movie. Even that beginning scene where we see the dogs and the and the women walk by, how all the the aesthetic of the women matches the dog, like the big like long settler dog with the long hair matches the like kind of like hippie woman. And then we see like the older stout lady with the little like bulldog. <laughs> it's really fun. It's cool to see. Uh, it's like when you, when you think uh, there's a, there's always that rumor like where you know some people could look like an animal and they, they look exactly like their dogs yeah that's right <laughs> and uh it was a fun scene where they meet and actually like uh you know pongo uh like pulls it he's like pulling his owner to war his pet towards uh towards them and you know they initially like gets in a mishap where they kind of fall in the in the pond and you know she's all wet and her hair hat's ruined and he's like have my handkerchief pulls it out and it's also wet and they actually kind of crack up and, you know, time skips ahead. They, they end up actually falling in love. They move in together. Pongo and Purdy are also an item, too. And, uh, you know, Pongo, as I said, Pongo fucks. So Pongo and Purdy, uh, they have, they're having babies. Um, at the same time, you know, Roger's working on his songs. Unlike the other Disney movies, too, not a whole lot of songs in this movie. It's really just, like, the two or three uh, songs. Obviously, the Cruella de Vil kind of ditty. Um, which you hear play on it a little bit in the film as well, too. 
Uh, really fun song, though, how the song is basically about how Cruella sucks, you know, how terrible she is. It's kind of like <laughs> the Grinch song, but about her. It's like <laughs> she is pretty awful. <laughs> and of course, yeah, when we meet Cruella, I totally forgot, like Cruella actually knows Anita, like they're like friends or something. Like I didn't yeah, they, really she, know. The they work, whole... he, he work, she works for her or something, doesn't she? Yeah. She in she... fashion. But I mean, Cruella is such a great iconic Disney villain. Like, you know, she's not like an evil sorcerer. She's just like a shitty rich lady who smokes. Yeah. Indoors. Like she just merges smoke in her long Virginia slim. She's not like sexualized. Uh, she's just wearing these awful like fur coats and you could smell like the disgusting, you know, smoke on it. It's like the inversion of like, you know, Audrey Hepburn's Breakfast at Tiffany's with that cigarette holder. <laughs> yeah, I believe uh, Betty Lou Gerson did the voice of Cruella. She had actually done the narration on Cinderella, and her oh. the animation of her character was very much inspired by like uh, Rosalind Russell, Bette Davis. You see a lot of that. She has a kind of like uh, transatlantic kind of accent. She has a kind of femme fatale kind of vibe to her, like an older at the time would have been like an older femme fatale from like you would imagine from like the 30s and 40s. She feels a bit anachronistic, you know. She got these lush furs and uh has her like weird, weird hair, yeah. <laughs> Hall of Fame level like grunt sidekicks, uh horse and Jasper, her, yeah. Horse and Jasper are so yeah. great. They're horse Horace, and Jasper, Jasper rock. <laughs> yeah, Horace. You get a lot of okay. I like the movie enough, but like I, I heard enough Horace Jasper like 50 times. I was like, all right, man, like, let's keep this shit going. I was getting a little. It is, it is funny when she gets pissed off at them, though. I maybe laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a who's who as well of like a radio talent. Disney, a lot of the early Disney films would use a lot of like established like radio talent or vaudeville stuff as like their uh, voiceover work. So Rod Taylor, uh, the voice of Pongo, was like a well known uh, radio guy. He was actually deliberately chosen because he has like a deeper voice than actually Roger to kind of stand out as sort of like the authoritative voice of the film. Um, and yeah, it's a the movie is about, of course, the the, the, the Dalmatians are born. I, I totally forgot as a kid. I thought they actually gave birth to 101 Dalmatians. Not true. Well, they, they find some along the like way. 15, and then they find a whole lot more along the way. Poor Perdita. Uh, they, have, they have these babies, um, and the babies are cute. We love the baby Dalmatians, don't we, folks? Especially Rolly. I love Rolly. He's this little chunky little Dalmatian who's like, What's that? I'm hungry, like constantly. And I'm like, what a little charming little uh, little tot there. Uh, but there's a great scene. I love to see where they're watching TV and like, yeah, just, that's you see them best. all. Their tails are wagging. They're watching this little like a uh, cowboy uh, mo- a show with this like dog who's like the yeah, dog it's like a cowboy. dog western. Like oh <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> the, the owners are nowhere to be found. The owners are just like hanging out somewhere. There's like a hundred dogs yeah. barking in their goddamn some, room. D- some dude on a uh, like some cowboy on a horse just like firing his Colt forty five at these dogs while they chase the horse. It's like. It's awesome. <laughs> and they're also really susceptible to advertising because they get the canine crunchies ad, which the dogs, yeah. the little dogs are all in. That's into. a fun little jingle. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it though because it shows like the domesticity of the dogs. It's like they just like, they're just like you and me. They're just like typical 60s, you know, London family. And you know what's uh, nice with, with the dogs in this movie is like there's a sense of community too. There's no like, they all like look after each other too, which is really yeah, nice. Yeah. So it's very anthropomorphic. I, wa- but... I, I was going to say that, Curtis, actually, there is a sense of comfort. And uh, and and family and and stuff like that with, with the movie, um, and that goes for for all the dogs that they come across too. But particularly that that uh, TV scene, I remember just watching it as a kid, and like obviously, like John said, you see like the tails wagging, and they're so like, just like you know, encaptivated in, in into the television set. But it's uh, yeah, it's like a it's a warm warm movie for sure. 
it kind of reminds me of like you see it kind of later with the some of the other Disney films too. Like I was reminded of the Rescuers and the Rescuers Down Under, where the animals are kind of looking after each other again too. And yes. they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of like this post-war like network, like spy. It's all it reminds me of like the type of network you would have seen like in during the war. It's like a way of transferring information. It's like yeah, like Underground Railroad the, or something. Yeah, <laughs> once the Dalmatians are stolen. The dogs are able to seek out help through this like pretty wide network. Um, and uh, also a kind of a fun note is the the horse, the gray horse, uh, who's sort of the friend of Sergeant Tibbs, the cat, and also the colonel, the big fluffy looking dog there. Um, he's actually voiced by uh, Thurl Ravenscroft, who if you, if you remember that, if you recognize the name, was the uh, who sung the You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch song. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, yeah. And I will say shout out to Sergeant Tibbs, who's a real G, because when... Um, when uh, the two thugs are ready to, uh, when Horace and, uh, oh God, what's the other guys? I've already forgotten. Horace, Horace and, and Jasper. Uh, Horace and Jasper, when they're going to like basically like kill the puppies. Sergeant Tibbs is right there with them. He's ready to die with them. So I thought, you know, Sergeant Tibbs is a real one. And it's actually a really fun scene. It's really like good scene where like Pongo and Purdy like break through the window and you like see them like starling like with their hair on the back of their neck standing up. It's actually a pretty dark scene like for like a, a movie like aimed at like basically seven year olds or whatever. Uh, where the lighting is all dark and you just see their snarling teeth. It's pretty, pretty gnarly. Um, and it's also fun noticing the kind of different styles of them when they're actually fighting. Like Purdy's very much about like tripping them and like kind of pulling their coats and and Pongo's like, I'll just bite their asses. I don't give a shit. Pongo's like tearing them apart. Um, <laughs> not to that degree, but um, I, I really enjoyed the fact that it, it, again, as you said, it's a community. It was, it's a bit of like a, a refugee movie. It's like they have to kind of run from like, community to community in the snow and seeing the like the just the warmth of the communities of animals along the way being like a like a family especially i think of like the um the collie um who just lets them into the the stable and like gives them food and really sets them up um i just thought it was a very warm film i gotta admit i'm, I'm not as high on this movie i think as i am on like some of the really classic disney canon like pinocchio and stuff um, but I think this one's just a really cozy movie. Um, as a dog owner myself, I really connect with the dogs, especially. I love the animation style of the dogs. It's really cool. Um, and it's a bit low stakes. Uh, like, no one really dies in this movie, if I don't recall. Yeah, no well, one I dies. think they, they want to, like, bash them on the... Well, I mean, it's well more they want to kill them. Yeah, yeah it's pretty... Yeah, this, but they don't this, actually the, do it. <laughs> the plot framing device of wanting to murder hundreds of dogs to, like, get their to coat. To make... Is... make dog skin coats for puppies <laughs> yeah. like that's pretty bad <laughs> yeah that yeah, i don't want to undersell it but like no one gets like murdered like i think yeah. carola developed the end crashes and like her car they crash the car and everyone's okay but everyone's and her coat's no, ruined too yeah <laughs> god um, forbid <laughs> yeah another um, great car chase movie as I was, well you know this one i was wondering why i don't chases. know if you know why they picked dalmatians of all dogs because i think there was a resurgence in dalmatians but i don't think they're a traditionally kind of family friendly pet they're from near croatia the croatian region i think like the balkan yeah. their balkan dog but i don't think they're like you always see them in the fire trucks and stuff too but i don't think they're like a very family friendly dog but i don't know after the film if there was like everyone wanted a dalmatian because i feel like that's would have happened <laughs> especially in england yeah i don't yeah, know I the exact history about it or i would oh go ahead go ahead quinn i'm cutting you off oh no no worries um yeah no i mean i'm, I'm sure it's definitely possible i might have been just sort of an animation thing because you know, mm. 1961, you know, like a little black and white dog with a few spots might be a little easier than, you know, some, you know, some brindle boxer or something, you know, like, but, uh, but what do I know? That's just a guess. Yeah, mm. I, I looked it up, actually. And um, yeah, as you're saying, Curtis, they, they date back there. They're from Croatia, but they actually became very popular dogs in, in England. 
um, kind of at the start of the Victorian era through to like the 1920s, 30s. So they were actually a, a fairly popular dog in England because of their notable spotted coats uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, as, as you were saying, Curtis, I don't know, really, I, maybe that's why they were chosen for the book because of their, their unique coat. It really stands out and actually helps to really make different design dogs as well too to make them really like unique from each other's characters um but yeah. really it was with the release of the book and this movie really popularized uh dalmatians and as you know curtis unlike what people would think dalmatians yes are not a breed that's a very family friendly easy to handle breed so um you know in the 60s 70s you saw a wave of like people getting dalmatians and unfortunately a lot of dalmatians weren't very well trained they're a very energetic dog breed mm-hmm. um and as a result actually dalmatians have kind of like flooded shelters although in the last 10 years i believe they've actually the numbers of them in shelters have significantly decreased as people have become more aware of like how you actually raise dalmatians properly and stuff like that um reminds me a little bit of like with when finding nemo came out there was like tons of fish owners who want or, or want be fish owners who wanted the like the clownfish um even though those fish are are not nemo you know they have their own you know considerations well, the blue tang too i don't i think it's like it's like extinct in the ocean isn't it the blue tang like dory's fish i Jeez. could be wrong though yeah, not she good. Really, will be able to find her family now. <laughs> yeah, they're not. They're not yeah. good because they have to catch them from. They don't do well in captivity, so I think they have to catch them from the wild every time. You want someone wants them, so they're actually not good fish to buy. But, <laughs> um, I guess just to wrap, maybe like release wise, this film. As I, I was, it, you know, I was framing this movie, saying, you know, Sleeping Beauty, total fucking bust. I'm exaggerating. This movie comes out. This movie was not a bust. It was actually a massive financial success. Uh, was one of the highest grossing movies of 1961 from the limited numbers I could see, because it's really hard to find pre seventies box office stuff. Uh, this was the highest rated box office hit of at least domestically of 1961 um, was a huge theatrical hit. And like a lot of the classic Disney films would get actually additional theatrical runs. This wasn't uncommon for a lot of movies, um, but this one got re-released in 1969, 1979, uh, notably for its anniversary in 1985, that was also its first tape release, and then it also got a release in 1991 uh, for me and Quinn. Uh, happy birthday to us. That's when we were born, and that was uh, uh, also when it was released on tape again. That's probably the tape we all had, the like Walt Disney kind of like uh, classics. It's, with the it's weird, too, because I, I feel like this is such a millennial experience or Gen X experience, but for like Gen Z, like they wouldn't have that clamshell VHS, and I, I just find it very interesting. I just can't imagine growing it's up without the, those uh, Disney classics. It's the know? black clam uh dvd case or whatever like the paper i don't know what they're called but they're those ones it's yeah that kind of that's their nostalgia is those cases <laughs> uh yeah this movie uh yeah this movie came out on tape for the first time 1992 uh the time of its release it was the sixth best-selling video of all time it sold 11.1 million copies so for anyone out there who's like yeah i'll sell you this dalmatian movie for like 30 bucks don't believe it because there's millions of them out there that's ridiculous um of course, later re-released. It was re-released on Laserdisc. Uh, all the Disney vault shit. If you're too young, Disney would always release stuff and be like, you have to buy it for a limit. There's a limited period of time to buy it, and then it's gone. So they would release it on DVD, and they also re- later released it on Blu-ray. I, I watched it. Maybe all, all of us did. I watched it on, on Disney+. Plus. It's on there. Very easy to watch it there. Um, yeah, critical. This movie was really actually a really big critical success for its time. Uh, a lot of its contemporaneous... Um, opinions where a lot of people thought hey this is like the best disney movie since snow white um kind of i would say maybe arguably as time has gone on i feel like it's 
people appraise it less. I, I just feel like uh, looking at some of the comments, some of the people found it kind of conventional, saying it's not in the same league as Snow White, Pinocchio. I'm kind of inclined to agree. I like this movie. I think it's fine. Really cozy. Love the animation in it. Um, it's kind of a good, it shows like a really good use of that kind of printed, lower cost uh, Xerox animation style. I think it looks really cool. I love seeing the pencil sketchings and everything. It feels very animated. Some of the sequences like in our, in Roger's apartment, it's almost got like a bit of like a watercolor feel with like, you could see like the kind of painting added in with the shading. It looks really, really great. Um, but the story just doesn't hook me. I don't even have really the same emotional connection to this like I do with the the Disney Renaissance films or even the earlier films like Pinocchio, which I was like obsessed with. Um, but uh, it's fun. And uh, this movie, though, was actually the first to get the live action adaptation treatment because I think we'll Glenn Close's Cruella de Vil. Yeah. And I wonder if there was probably some people who their first experience with 101 Dalmatians was watching those movies. Like, I remember they were a big deal, like the trailers for them. I don't she, even think she I've would, ever seen she them. Was, but... She was scary in that movie. She's like, drown them, bash them over the head. And then, like, Horace uh, and Jasper, was... they have Lionel Skinner, too, like, who wants to skin them. And Sorry, oh, Quinn. Oh, she, was, she was good as, as Cruella. Yeah, she's really good. Glenn Close. Yeah, and there was, of course, a sequel of 102 Dalmatians. I guess that means there's an extra Dalmatian somewhere. I see Direct the, to DVD. <laughs> not a fan. Not a, not a 102 <laughs> head. Uh, there's also a, a sequel. There was a 2003, uh, I guess, directed DVD sequel. I saw a trailer for it or a clip on Disney+. Plus. I was like, all right, this looks... What I thought was interesting is the clip, the animation style looks very similar. You could tell it's like modern, cleaned up, but it looks like almost the exact same animation style as the original. So I thought that was kind of cool. And uh, more recently, of course, uh, Disney did another of the recent series of adaptations. They did a prequel adaptation, Cruella, starring Emma Stone, who plays like the younger version of Cruella. And actually, apparently there's a sequel coming out. So we'll see about that. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe I will at some point. I do love those dogs, though. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to say. It's a very cozy movie. Not a whole lot of stakes going on. Um, but I will say I think it's pretty fine. Did you guys want to jump into our, uh, our ratings then? Yeah, we can do that. Um, I right. gave it a, I gave it a four out of five. Um, oh. obviously this was a fun one, kind of growing up. Um, it, it does have some pacing issues. I think it's kind of cute and sweet. I love like the villains in it too. Um, but yeah, I mean the animation looks great. I mean not too many songs, <laughs> and uh, it, it's kind of a fun movie. So four out of five for me. Cool. What about you, Quinn? Uh, yeah, uh, I gave it a three and a half out of five. Um, I agree with John. And Curtis, too. I think it's a good movie. It's not one of my favorites. It's never really been one of my favorites. Even as a kid, I enjoyed it and I watched it, you know, a lot and everything. But it doesn't stand out as one of those ones like my Desert Island, you know, pre sort of 70s, 60s, whatever um, Disney movies. Like, I, I, I do prefer Snow White, uh, much prefer Pinocchio. I even prefer Peter Pan, which was re released in yeah. the early 50s. But uh yeah, overall three and a half out of five. Good movie, great. Like it's it's a great movie. It has you know anim great animation, great everything. Uh, but it's just uh, it does lack some of that Disney magic that I always liked. Um, for me anyway. But the dogs are awesome, so adorable, and really really cool illustrations. The animation's awesome. So three point five out of five. John, yeah, I'm I'm in the same camp. I went three three and a half. Uh, I think it's a really good movie. It's really colorful. Um, not too long either. I like that it's like that it, it's it's in and out. I think it's roughly like what, maybe under eighty minutes. Oh, seventy nine minutes. So yeah, we're an hour and a bit. Like I feel like the the pacing's good. It's not too bogged down. 
Um, I do think maybe it, it kind of um, starts to slow a little bit, like once the puppies are taken, like it's a bit of a, yeah. a drag, but once they actually rescue them, it really kind of kicks off again. Um, and uh, I think the characters are fun. Um, I didn't love it as much as I was younger because I wasn't a dog guy. My parents had cats. Now that I'm a dog guy, I really enjoy the movie. I, I connect with it more. Um, I guess for better, for worse, like I, I do love a lot of the post Dalmatians Disney movies. Like, I mean, the aristocrats or Aristocats are great. Uh, yeah, I love the Fox and the Hound, a lot of the darker stuff that this in the in the animation ghetto era. But I, I do feel like maybe like this is kind of the start of like what was kind of a negative trend for Disney of more towards cost cutting measures and stories that weren't musicals that felt a little bit, you know, rougher. I do like that this is like a contemporary 60s London movie. And the, I do like the little music ditties in it. I love when Roger's playing the the theme when Cruella's in and like the cuts it cuts to like him with like the trombone pointed at the floor I crack up every time I see that stuff uh, but yeah it just doesn't have the same appeal to me as the earlier classic musical Disney stuff and again the revival stuff that would come you know post Great Mouse Detective um, would be kind of fun to get into some of the like lesser known Disney stuff because I know Curtis I know you're a big Adventurers Adventurers uh, Down Under fan um, yeah I love Rescuers Rescuers not Adventurers sorry yeah. Rescuers <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, the Great Mouse Detective. That was like one of my favorites. I like I like yeah. Weird Disney too. I like like the Black Cauldron and I like you know Tarzan when it's really dark. <laughs> yeah. So another that would, one. Kind of... Another one I like. I I think it's a Disney movie. I could be wrong, but Oliver and Company. Oh, that's a yes. fun one. That was Billy right Joel. before. Yeah, that was right before Little Mermaid. That was like right at the cusp of when they came back with the. Yeah, that's a that, good one. That was one of the sort of B Disney movies that I always loved. That feels like a very you movie too, because it's very New York too. New York, Billy <laughs> Joel, it's and it's obviously like it's derived from the story of Oliver Twist, which I I, I love Dickens, but I just love that um, that story, just Oliver Twist in general. So cool. Uh, one one that like I remember. This isn't from that same era. This is like a classic Disney, but like I had this on tape. Do you guys remember the Three Caballeros? Yep. Yeah, I never watched it, but I, okay. I always saw I, it. Yeah. It's a weird yeah, fucking movie. It's like a travel movie. It's like Donald and like a I think like a Chilean and a Mexican bird. And it's like it it, it cuts between there, like animated stuff and like, oh, documentary footage of like Mexico and South America. I loved it as a kid, but very weird movie. I just remember like being really into I I remember Donald like blows his like hand up like a balloon and that always like that visuals in my head. I don't know why, but uh yeah that one always i don't have tape i used to watch it all the time i'm like this is a weird even as like an eight-year-old i'm like this is a weird fucking movie <laughs> like this isn't this isn't fucking lion king or aladdin like what am i watching it's very strange um again because i think as kids like you don't know oh this is from 1942 this is from you just you just watch them all like i watched i probably right. watched aladdin before i saw like dumbo you know like i kind of watched them all at the same time and it kind of flattens everything i wonder if it's now the similar experience for younger kids who probably grew up they probably watched like Lilo and Stitch and like Tangled before they saw like Dumbo as well. So I wonder if like they have a similar experience now with those movies. I don't know. Um, I'm yeah. not a child, so I can't uh, verify, but um, kind of what I'd be interested to see like how they feel about those movies in, in context with the earlier movies as well too. Cause I feel like all those pre like pre Aladdin Disney's are just like, for me, they're all like, I just have more memories of watching them on tape because we had them all the classic tape releases and stuff like that. Um, so that's how I saw them anyway. Um, yeah. I wonder if it's a bit different it, now, but who knows? It's also so weird to think too. Like I know we've touched on Pinocchio a couple of times in this podcast and, and hopefully we, we, we get to, to watch Pinocchio as a, as a podcast uh, group one day, but um, 
it's hard to believe that that movie came out like well into World War II. Well, not well into, yeah. but like a year year in or whatever. But yeah, it's like a year after it started. Yeah, it was before America started. was in the Second World War, actually. Because I think like, right. it's in- it's right. interesting with the new one too, because they actually have like uh, Il Duce. They have like uh, the Italian fascist guy in it too as a character, yeah. which is interesting. Oh, Del Toro's Pinocchio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and also like what like what's changed from the original Pinocchio too, like. I don't know for sure, but apparently, like Dis- Disney Plus has taken away a few scenes. Like that bar scene's pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. There's been like a few things like in in Pinocchio over the years that's been brought up and sort of sort of canceled it in, in oh, a way. Really? I don't yeah. know if that's too bad. I, 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 I like I, to watch the original cut because I, I watch yeah. all the Disney. I like to watch the Disney shorts and they they put up the like the the like the warning banner of like cultural sensitivity um which yeah. i think is probably the better way to go because it's like okay sure. i see that banner come up i'm like all right i'm gonna see some black face i'm gonna see some red face yeah. i'm gonna see a whole bunch of weird shit in this like but taking 1920s away child's right. cartoon and the other thing is is like okay cultural appropriation yeah yeah okay we're doing better at that nowadays and that's fine but things were different back then things were different back then it's like looking at like, I know you touched on the, the Priscilla thing, too. And, like, obviously, that's, like, in 2023, you're like, oh, my God, she was 14. Like, what a fucking piece of shit Elvis was. But at the same time, like, that was sort of, like, cultural appropriation back then. Now it's pedophilia. So it's, like, that's a long time to, like, things to change and things to get over. And maybe it wasn't appropriate back then. And that's I was going to say, thought- Jerry Lee Wallace's career was ruined in the 50s because he married his like 13 year old cousin i don't know about that <laughs> right. uh, some of that's right. not totally true but i do i do see what you're saying i think like um what what they're doing now with like let's put up our like fbi warning banner but for like racism and shit i think that's probably a better way to go about it because it's like sure. you can choose if you want to actually watch them you know it's like we've seen this now with like um like certain episodes of shows like i think of community which had a, a notable episode with blackface with the uh the D episode which was intentionally meant to be that in a way to like really shock people um that's now been removed off streaming um I, I think as an audience it's okay for people to really judge it the way they want to judge it and if you don't want to watch something you don't have to but i do think like right. I, I don't know if removing content is necessarily the way to go um yeah. but I, that's another i guess topic for another time but you know maybe we could just like educate like why you know people saw it a certain way and maybe why it could be seen as problematic now, but yeah. I mean, it's always hard to do to start those discussions yeah. sometimes. But I'd be up yeah. for doing. <laughs> I, I, and I, I couldn't agree more. But at the same time, if you're going to watch a movie from the 1960s and get offended, it's like, well, the train already yeah. left. <laughs> like, give us you know, the butt cut of Splash. Damn it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like you know, it's like things were different back then, and what was rude is not necessarily rude now, and vice versa. Yeah, it was a different world back then. Well, what I find so interesting is, like, I'll watch a movie from, like, the 90s now, and I'm like, I was a kid. Like, I remember that movie. I grew up with that movie. Uh, To me, it was a movie, and I watch it now, and I'm like, wow, this movie's fucked. (laughs) Like, I I see, like, so much bad shit in it. I'm like, it was always like that, but it's like, now, it just shows you how, even in our lifetimes now, we're getting older enough that we can look back at stuff from like the nineties, two thousands and be like, wow, this is like really shitty. And it just makes you realize that, you know what? 20 years from now, we're going to look back at like, well, yeah, like X Netflix release from 2020. We're gonna be like, wow, that's really weird that they were well, doing that. So I was know, watching like, I, I was watching change. like bring it on recently too. And you know, like I like to watch the original cuts and everything. And I mean, like, I guess back then it was maybe it was okay, but there was like kind of like the guy who was like talking to the cheerleaders, the teenage cheerleaders was kind of, creepy and i was like oh shit i didn't realize how like cringy this guy is you know and back then i i don't think people really noticed but i guess 
you know, 20 years well, later. At, also look at Tropic Thunder. If Tropic yeah. Thunder came out today, the world would fucking implode. <laughs> yeah. And it only came out in like 07. Or yeah. so I, I, I could be wrong, but like things are, you know, super bad, super bad is like the like they even say they're like it's like the last comedy that took they it got to in that. just before the door closed good on them but yeah um don't look up the uh recent uh mila kudis ash and kutcher old interviews uh based on some recent events oh, i just happening. saw those uh, except you yeah. yeah it's uh, yeah. i was like oh man what was ash and kutcher saying there's a really bad uh, <laughs> folks you can <laughs> google yourself but <laughs> it's uh Same with the interviews with with danny danny masterson with like uh conan o'brien yeah, it is Conan. Yeah, he's Conan's like, it's like you are gonna go to jail someday or whatever. I'm yeah. like, oh, goo, like, watch yeah. this. Like, yeah. yeah, folks at home listening to this or wherever you are, check it out. Quick <laughs> YouTube, bad. it is pretty, it's pretty fucked up. It's like right in the open. Um, yeah. what a subject yeah. we've come to from 101 Dalmatians. You know, we we touched <laughs> yeah, on exactly. everything. We, here we covered a lot podcast. of and, topics yeah. here and before, right? So it was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> This is this is a ride, but I mean, um, obviously, we're all in our in our early thirties, and uh, you know, we saw this movie as a kid, and yeah, and uh, there'll be a lot of older listeners that 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 they watched uh, this movie as a kid too, and 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 hopefully some of some of the the younger younger folks, um, um, have seen this movie. Just especially, it's nice um, nowadays having Disney Plus, where you can revisit these films no matter what decade they they are from, but. Uh, but other than that, I think that is about all for me. Yeah. For I don't have anything more to say about this dog movie. It's good. Me too. And overall, oh, we yeah. gave it a three out of five. So we fell into a pretty pretty good, satisfying yeah. camp. Um, what's coming up next? Well, folks, kids out there. Reese Lightning. Back, you're back to school. It's hydromatic. You know, you're buying your lunchboxes, your uh, binders. Now nah, they're on like laptops now. I don't give a shit. But they're back to school. Um, so as Curtis inferred, we're doing a little back to school movies. So we're gonna be talking next week. Grease. Slick your hair and <laughs> which, don't drop. Which don't drop out of. Uh, don't drop out of. Uh, beauty, beauty school. Drop out. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to high school. I love yeah. Grease. I, that would have been my canon pick if I had done it as a canon film because I. Oh, I love, I John love that movie. I love. I've watched it oh, a million times. So very excited yep. to watch it again for next week. And following that, Curtis, we have a selection from you. Uh, yeah, it's my back to school pick. So it's a 1984 horror movie, The Class of 1984, starring a very young Michael J. Fox. So uh wild movie, uh, really fun. And I hope you'll join us for that, too. Yeah, and we'll yeah. have our spooky cannon coming up soon. So we'll be getting into some of yeah, our it's a nice favorite horror back to picks. school uh, spooky season one. So it's a nice crossover. <laughs> yeah, so we're getting into that stuff. I, it's interesting. I feel like around this time of year, I'm seeing on Letterboxd and everywhere here to October, everyone's like, oh, it's Shocktober. It's Hooptober. Time to watch. And I love that. But I, I watch horror movies all the time. So I've never been like, a, this is the time to watch horror movies. I do I do watch horror movies during Halloween, like as, as everyone does. But I've never been a big like I gotta make my whole list because to me I just watch them all the time. So for me it's like any other uh, time. But I am happy that a lot of people are watching horrors. A lot it's a good time to watch new stuff, stuff you haven't seen before. So um, we're gonna be featuring some stuff. Some of it's classic stuff you've probably heard of. Some of it is classics that maybe you haven't heard of. So we'll be excited to uh, get into that uh, in the next month because I think that's like our favorite kind of season. I know last year we loved doing our we like our spooky it picks. Was a lot yeah. of fun. Um, oh good. yeah and if you guys out there in radio land there'll be, have there'll be more there'll, there'll be more halloween sequels too so stay tuned for that <laughs> uh, yeah if you guys love uh, horror movies if there's stuff you'd like to recommend let us know um we like stuff so happy to get recommendations and uh i think that wraps it up anything you guys want to add before we shut this down 
Uh, I'm good. No, just uh, enjoy the football. Uh, yeah. Anyone watching football season. Uh, NFL week one, first Sunday of the year is today. Uh, right. We're all excited for it. Um, so, all- yeah. Enjoy. We're all diehard Cleveland Brad fans. Let's go dog pound. Woof, woof, woof. But all right, guys. Well, we will see you next week on episode 102. This is a wrap for episode 101 and our Dalmatians. So we will see you next week. Take care, right. everyone. Everyone. Who let the dogs out? <laughs>